Grab your Bibles. Go. Okay, wait. Let's, have, let's do a little test. You all see the name of the book right there, right? I want everybody on the count of three to say it out loud and see how many different pronunciations we get. Ready? One, two, three. Okay, that was pretty close. That's pretty good. Actually, it's pronounced haggis. I'm just kidding. <laughs> You're all like, is that the Hebrew? That's fantastic. No, it's, I, I don't know how it's pronounced, so I'm sure we're going to do it wrong. This is one of those guys, when I get to heaven, he's going to be walk up to me and like, do you see an E in the middle of that Haggai? Come on, man. We all know it's Haggai. Haggai. I have no idea. So um, we'll call him Haggai, and I'll call him Haggai. Those are the two that I kind of go back and forth on. That's all right. Um, Jason said something about, man, it'd be great if we just sang all day long. And, and it, it, it would be, wouldn't it? It would be, especially if I'm not up here singing. It'd be great. Um, may, two things I want to remind you of. First is, is kind of more serious. You have the opportunity to do that all day long. I mean, you, it, it's more fun, particularly if you have a voice like mine. It's more fun when there's other people involved, okay? But, but I tell you what, the technology that we have today, folks, you should be in your car, American, idling it all day long. Just let it fly. There's some things that I've had the opportunity to do in the last couple of years because of podcasts and because of this wonderful Pandora and now Spotify thing. And I get to listen to things that otherwise I never would have heard before. And so may I encourage you, even with your worship, redeem your commute. Redeem your commute. Listen to podcasts. Listen to worship music. Pretend like you have a voice that people would want to listen to. Sing. Make, be, join me in being the people who drive your car on the road and others pass you like, something's wrong with the dude in that car. Join me. It's fun. It's enjoyable. Um, so that's, that's, that's one. So redeem the commute. The other thing I would like to encourage you, we announced it on Facebook this week, because our children chose our preaching series for the summer. They picked their favorite Sunday school stories, and, and that's going to kind of drive what our preaching series is for the summer, which is going to be all kinds of interesting. Uh, we decided that, you know what, we need a shot too as adults. We need, so what we're going to do is we're going to collect your favorite worship songs. And when we're planning our services each week, we're going to take from the list of your favorite worship songs, and we're just going to, it's kind of like an old hymn sing, it's a little harder to do that with some of these songs, so we're just going to sing our favorites on those Sundays. So out on the chalkboard, there's chalk there, we've already started writing some of our favorite worship songs. On your way out, over the next few weeks, fill up the board, we won't make fun of many of them. <laughs> okay, I will make fun of a couple of them, I'm just being honest, so... Give me some material, would you? All right, so as we look at Haggai, um, <laughs> all right, so let me be honest. I'm not really that excited about the book of Haggai. So now you can just go to sleep. I've given you permission to take a nap. This week, I really was wrestling with it because last week's passage in Zephaniah absolutely goosebumped me out. Um just a powerful reminder of how much God loves us. And so what I decided was I'm going to listen to how some other guys have handled in their preaching the book of Haggai. And so I listened to a couple of podcasts, a couple of messages, and, and it was interesting. But one guy I listened to, a, a popular guy, I don't know if you've ever heard of this guy named Francis Chan. He, uh, 
he got ready to preach Haggai, and he got up, and it was, it was hilarious. And his comment was this. He's like, you know, wasn't last week fun? Last week was awesome. I mean, I really killed it last week. Like, well, okay. Excuse me. He said, so, but let me ask you a question. How many of you, because of the message last week, lived differently this week? And I didn't get to see anything. I just heard him go, "Uh uh-huh. About 10%. I'm preaching it again. And so he preached the same message and skipped Haggai. (laughs) Huh? Huh? It's pretty tempting, ain't it? (laughs) However, (laughs) I hope you know my goal as I stand up here from week to week is not to keep you awake or to give you something to laugh about on your way home. And my goal is to present what is the Word of God so that our hearts and souls and spirits would be pricked by the Holy Spirit and we would live differently. What motivates you? What drives you? So it was a number of years ago, my children went to their grandparents' house and their granddad had some yard work to do and he really wasn't looking forward to it. And so he looked at my three older children and he issued them this challenge. For every pine cone you pick up in my yard, I will give you a dime. Seems pretty insignificant, doesn't it? I wasn't there. (laughs) But every time the story comes up, every person who was there gets kind of the exact same story, the same emotion involved. Stephanie's emotion was much different than my children's emotion. In fact, there's a little bit of tension between my children and Stephanie still to this day as a result of some of the things Stephanie did, and this is why. When you motivate a young child with cash like that, the number of pine cones they pick up is ridiculous. They came back to the porch looking like Santa's little helpers. Um, I think, based on the sheer volume of pine cones they came back with, I believe that some of them were actually in the trees, knocking them out of the trees. (laughs) So they returned to the porch, and they began counting, because Papa's going to keep his word. And it was one, two, three, four, five, forty, fifty, sixty, three hundred, three hundred and twenty. (laughs) <laughs> I'm not done yet. 400, 450. By that point, my wife is helping her dad count by taking armfuls of pine cones and shoving them in the bag going, one, two, because, as she tells the story, she's watching her inheritance drain away. <laughs> no exaggeration. Even with Stephanie counting by armfuls, each of the three children walked away with between 50 and $60. That's 500 to 600 pine cones. It, <laughs> Amber made the cover, cracked me up. Man, I would have made bank if mom would have been counted by armful. <laughs> they were motivated. They were motivated. And so what the book of Haggai is about is what our true motivation should be. So let's read verse 1. It'll set the context for the morning and it'll give you a better understanding of my struggles with the book of Haggai. It begins like this. Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. 
In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And thus ends the reading of God's holy inspired word. You guys are just like grabbed right away by that verse, aren't you? It actually is the key component, and it gives us a picture into the book of Haggai and why it's effective at communicating what it affects and what it communicates. is because Haggai is a historian, and so throughout this book, there are no other books of the Bible that we have more specific information about the dating of the writing of the book than the book of Haggai. It's, it's, it's remarkable. He, he goes through and dates these things for us, and, and I, I think... I'm going to do this. In order to understand the context of these dates that Haggai has just mentioned, talking about the the second year of King Darius, you you need to understand some some scriptural Old Testament history. And so we're going to go back a little bit. In fact, we're going to go all the way back to creation. So we'll see how far we make it in the time allotted. (laughs) So God created everything by the very word of his mouth. God created man and woman. And it was, a, it was a very good creation. It was a creation that God took great delight in. And there was something specifically special about man and woman, and it's this. He created man and woman in his image. So it's very different than all the rest of creation. And, and there, was a, there was a relationship aspect to, to, to the, the creation of male and female and God. And so there was unbroken fellowship, we find, in Genesis 1 and 2 that was occurring. And actually, you see it in Genesis 3, kind of a back backdoor way to look at it. There was unbroken fellowship between God and man, and there was communication and conversation, and the presence of God was there, and, and it was this very special and specific time that they had until the serpent showed up in chapter 3, and, and basically, in essence, if you're going to boil it down to its most basic level, he challenges the, the truthfulness of God and makes the claim to Eve that, you know, God's holding out on you. God's holding out on you. That's why he doesn't want you to eat from that tree. So they eat. And immediately there's a a separation that occurs. And then God removes them from the garden after the curse. And and from that moment, Adam and Eve and their children are are filling the earth with children. They're they're populating the earth. and And it's growing and it's growing. What's happening with the people is rebellion is continuing and continuing. Rebellion is continuing and continuing. There's this, this great rebellion against God, and it's not ceasing. And then you get to Genesis chapter 6, where God looks down, and you hear the, 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 the heart of God as he looks at mankind, who is now rebelling against him, and he says, I cannot put up with this forever. I regret making them. They are so rebellious. And God purposes to wipe out mankind in a flood. But Noah found favor in God's eyes. And so through, through a relationship with Noah and Noah's family, God rescued humanity. The flood comes, Noah and his children get off the boat. They are commanded to repopulate the earth. It is literally within eyeshot of the boat. And the rebellion begins again. Again, the, the separation happens with God. You fast forward some years, and in, in Genesis, it's only five chapters, but there's a, a great mass of humanity who has kind of come together at Babel, and they have decided they're going to build a tower to the heavens. They're going to build it as high as they can to prove how, how wonderful they are as humanity and to prove their self-worth. And, and God reaches down, and he, he scatters their languages. He creates new languages, so now they cannot communicate with each other. 
And now they're, they're driven from Babel and they, and they go. So, so God gets into the middle of it, sends them out, and as they go, do you know what they do? Rebel some more. And now you get to the place where within each of those different cultures that have their own languages, which have separated from each other, within those cultures, now they are creating their own religions. And in those own religions, what you will find is that its basic core is that they are allowed to do whatever makes them happy. Really, the God of all of their religions becomes them. God reaches down and says, listen, I'm going to prove who I am to all of those nations. And so out of all of those nations, I will, I will make a great nation out of you, Abraham. And you remember the story, Abraham's like, little problem, God. I'm not a spring chicken today. Pushing 100, I ain't got any kids. And my wife's 90, so I'm just saying. And God says, don't worry, I will come to you. I will visit you, and you will have a child. And they do. Abram and Sarah have a child. That child's name is Isaac. Isaac has a couple of children, but for, for time's sake, we'll just talk about his one child named Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons who are now the, the 12 tribes of Israel as you read through the Old Testament. But, but, and Jacob's name is changed to Israel. Now with Jacob's 12 sons, they are, find themselves in Egypt. So all of the children of Jacob, the children of Israel, are now in Egypt, <clears throat> and they're being enslaved by Pharaoh. You remember what God does? He calls Moses. He says, Moses, I want you to go and I want you to rescue my people. I want you to lead my people out of Egypt. And if you remember the call of Moses from the burning bush, you will hear more excuses than you'll hear from your child why they didn't brush their teeth last night. But I, but uh, don't you think, I don't know, what I, just brush your teeth. Moses, just go. I will be with you. And still, begrudgingly almost, Moses heads back to Egypt. The, 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 the ten plagues come. It's, it's culminated in the death of the firstborn. Pharaoh finally says, go, just go, just get out, take whatever you want, get away. We can't put up with this anymore, we can't have this continue, leave. And so Moses leads the children of Israel out of Egypt, but you know, they get to the Red Sea, turn around and look, and here comes Pharaoh behind him because he changed his mind. God, through Moses, uh, parts the Red Sea, and, and every child of Israel walks through the Red Sea with the water on either side, and they stand on dry land. They make it to the other side, and Pharaoh and his armies are like, we don't know what this is, but we're in. And so they take off, and then God says, that's it. Water can fall. The water falls and destroys Pharaoh and his armies. They get to the other side of the Red Sea. These children of Israel get to the other side of the Red Sea. They just got to see God miraculously provide for them, and they look at Moses and say, it would have been better if we would have died in Egypt instead of out here. At least we had meat. No, they didn't. Bunch of whiners. So Moses continues to lead them through the wilderness, and God says to him, I'm going to take you to this land. It is flowing with milk and honey. It'll be like anything beyond your wildest imagination. All those people looking back to Egypt thinking, boy, I wish we were back there, could have meat. No, it's going to be way better than that. There's going to be fruit and vegetables. It's going to be the most fertile soil you've ever seen. It's going to be ridiculous. It probably had a Chick-fil-A because it was a Christian place. So probably a Chick-fil-A. I mean, come on, everybody's got Chick-fil-A. So 
I wonder if it was open on Saturdays back then. I don't know. Sorry. <laughs> That's what happens when I freestyle. Dad jokes come out. <laughs> so they get to the promised land or the outskirts of the promised land. And you know the story, the 12 spies run into the promised land to check it out and bring a report back. And those, those 12 spies come back and they're all in total agreement over the fact that this land is ridiculous. It is gorgeous. It is beautiful. It's amazing. It's overwhelming. It's, it's all our hearts could ever possibly desire. And all 12 spies are in agreement with the fact that there's some big dudes living in the land. The difference comes with this. Ten of the spies say, they're too big. We can never conquer them. Two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, are like, wait a minute, hold on. Have you forgotten what God has done for us already? Let's do this. But the ten went out. God's judgment on the people was that generation must die off before they're allowed to enter into the land. Moses gets to the very precipice of the mountain looking at the land, but he cannot enter. He takes his leadership mantle and he passes it to Joshua, the son of Caleb. And, and Joshua is this, this amazing man who's, who, who, who's in a weird position. He's got to follow one of the greatest leaders the country has ever seen, and he's got to lead millions of people into a place that they really want to go to, but they're too chicken to get there. Which, which means that, that's how you'll understand that when God comes to Joshua in that transference of leadership, he says, hey, don't be afraid. I'm with you, Joshua. Joshua and the people enter into the promised land and they conquer the people who are in the land. They, they conquer people around every corner. There's this amazing movement that's occurring and they're, they're in this land and then, then the people, fast forward some years, the people cry out, we want to be like everybody else. We want a king. And God says, What? Why would you want a king? We, we want a king. Everybody else has a king. Why can't we have a king? And God's response is, because you have me. Yeah, but we want a man. So God gives them a king. His name is Saul. He was a tall fella. Good looking. Terrible king. Terrible king. The next king was David. Great king! Unless you consider murder and adultery a problem. But in God's eyes, and that should bring us great encouragement, particularly if you're here and you're a murderer, God looks at David and says, that's a great king. He's a man after my heart. David has a son whose name is Solomon. Solomon builds this temple for God. It's the place where God's presence will dwell so that all the people will know that God is with them. And it is magnificent. It is ornate. It is one of the most beautiful buildings that has ever been built. Fast forward some more years. There's children of Solomon named Rehoboam and Jeroboam, and there's this civil war that occurs. And now what was one nation is now split into two. And now you have the, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And if you look at the history of the northern kingdom, it seems like they never had a good king. I mean, they had a, a couple of okay, but it seems like just things were terrible for the northern kingdom. And they continued in the rebellion. They continued in the rebellion. They continued in the rebellion until finally God said, I am not putting up with it anymore. And Assyria, the great empire of the north, came swooping in and conquered the northern kingdom. Move ahead about 100, 150 years. 
The southern kingdom is, is barely hanging on, but they are deep in their rebellion. They're entrenched in their rebellion. And this, this nation called Babylon comes in. And, and the Babylonians come into the southern kingdom and they take all of the people and they exile them. That means they, they carry them away because that was the way they, they did their conquering back in the day for the Babylonians was they believed if we would take the people out of their homeland instead of leaving them there and trying to, to rule over them there, it would be less likely they would rebel against us. And so, so here what they did is they came into the southern kingdom and they exiled the people 900 miles from home. Just marched them 900 miles. That would be similar to somebody coming in today, grabbing all of us and marching us 900 miles to Des Moines, Iowa. I mean, I'm nothing against Des Moines. I'm sure it's lovely this time of year, but it's a long way from home. And there they sat. As God would have it, fast forward about 50 years, the Babylonians are overthrown by the Persians. The Persians come in, King Cyrus comes in, and they were a little bit different than the Babylonians. The Babylonians wanted strict, strict control, particularly over religion. There was to be no religion that was not run through the Babylonian filter. But the, the Persians were a little more liberal with their theological leanings, and so they liked this pluralism idea. So that way, if you had a God, you go, you worship it, we'll, we'll try to make sure that you, just in case we're wrong about who we think God is, we got it covered somewhere. And so Cyrus issues a decree. Now, 50 years after the people have been exiled to Des Moines, <laughs> it really wasn't Des Moines, I promise. If you go to Des Moines, I'll be very disappointed. Um, and he issues this decree, and he says, you can go home. You can go home and, and, and head on back. And 50,000 Jews actually take the offer, and they take the 900-mile the journey back to Jerusalem. And if you want a little bit of background on that, you read the book of Ezra. Ezra kind of lays it out. In fact, it was funny. In this, this uh, translation that I have here in front of me, when I looked at Ezra um, this week, it actually lists out specifically the numbers for each tribe to the, to the right of it. So it's very, it's like, so there were uh, 1,254 of Elam's descendants, uh, 642 of Bani's descendants. I mean, it's very specific. That's how well they kept records back in the day, which is why the genealogy of Jesus is so cool. But that's a whole different message. Getting a little carried away. I promise. Even though I don't like Haggai, I'm going to get there. I promise. So 50,000 Jews head back to Jerusalem. You can read their story in Ezra. Uh, a large portion, actually, this is interesting, a large portion of the Jews decided to stay in Persia. The idea is, man, we're doing okay. Cyrus is a good guy. Persia is way better than Babylon. So we're not going anywhere. We're just going to stay here. And, if, and, and, and when you want to see what that looked like, you read the book of Esther, which we're going to do that this summer. Um, so, so as they come back to Jerusalem, there's kind of a couple different factions, a couple different groups that do different things. Uh, the book of Nehemiah talks about the building of the wall when they return. Here, the book of Haggai, and actually the book that we'll cover next week, Zechariah, focus on the rebuilding of the temple. That temple that had been laying in ruins. The temple that had been so ornate and unbelievable. The temple that had housed the very presence of God and the, the communication to the people of Israel that God was with them. So the people are heading back to Haggai to rebuild that. And that, that is the Old Testament in like eight minutes. Um, I did skip some, so you probably should still read it. <laughs> and it leads us to this point in verse 2 of Haggai chapter 1. The Lord of armies says this, these people say, 
The time has not come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai and said this, Well, is it a time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruin? So, so you hear God's voice. At, and you, I, I do love the way that it's worded there. These people. It's almost like, well, you know what your son did today? God said, these people have said that it's not time for us to, to build God's house. It's not time for us to, to rebuild the temple. And yet, God's condemnation against them was, oh, okay, I see. It's not time for you to work on the temple, but you have plenty of time to work on your house. Oh, I get it. So, so you don't have time to dedicate to what you actually came home to do, but you're living in what he called paneled housing. The idea is just living in, in comfort. It's a well-appointed. It's, it's kind of high-designed fashion at the time. Um, paneling used to be high-designed fashion at the time. So it's good, whatever, it works. So that's what's there. And they had, they had the, the, the wealth, the riches to be able to provide for themselves like that. Let me, let me make sure I say this. What God is railing against is not living in comfort. What God's angry about is the fact that they elevated their comfort over him. And that's, that's the story. So, so God then says, okay, this is what you've done. You've ignored my temple, and you've been building your own home. So, so let me ask you a question. How's that working for you? Verse 4, God says, I'm sorry, verse 5, the Lord, Ar- Lord of armies says this, think carefully about your ways. You've planted much, but you've harvested just a little. You eat, but you never have enough to be satisfied. You drink, but never have enough to be happy. You put on clothes, but you never have enough to get warm. The wage earner puts his wages into a bag with a hole in it. The Lord of armies says this, think carefully about your ways. Go up to the hills, bring down the lumber, and build the house. And I will be pleased with it, and I will be glorified, says the Lord. See, you expected much, but then it amounted to just a little. When you brought the the harvest to your house, I ruined it. Why? This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. Because my house still lies in ruins, while each of you is busy with his own house. So so God (laughs) says to the people, so good, good. So you have completely neglected what you're supposed to be here doing. You've neglected my work, and you're doing your own work, and and you're investing in your own work, and you're you're focusing on your own work, and you're focusing on what you want to do. How is that working for you? You're, You're going out to the field, and you're trying to harvest crops all day, and you're coming back with nothing. You sit at the table to feed your face, and you walk away, and you're hungry again. You, I love the, the, the wage earners. You're, you're getting money, and you're putting it in your purse, and it's like your purse has holes in it. You're walking away. By the time you get home, you're like, where'd it go? You're leaving a Hansel and Gretel trail up the road. I, I, I've never carried a purse, so I, I think that's what it would look like, Hansel and Gretel. I, I'm pretty sure I haven't carried a purse. Let's leave it at that. <laughs> um, what you find with the children of Israel is this. Instead of focusing on what God wanted them to do, they were building a kingdom of self. And if you want a full description of what the kingdom of self looks like, you want to read the book of Ecclesiastes. Because what King Solomon says, I am the king of the kingdom of self. And what I can tell you is this, when all is said and done, after you've accumulated everything you could possibly accumulate, when you've got every material thing you could possibly want, when you've been married more times than you could possibly imagine, you have everything your heart's desired, and then some, at the end of the day, it's empty. Vanity. Worthless. It's like 
It's like chasing the wind. Chasing the wind. It's a stupid endeavor that even if you accomplish it, you end up with nothing. And that's what building the kingdom of self looks like. And he says to his people, you've been busy about building the kingdom of self. And when you're building the kingdom of self, you're focused on these things. And when you're focused on these things, and that becomes the the culminating, um, uh, the terminating of your effort, that becomes what you focus on your entire life, and that's what you drive for, then you're always going to need to drive more because they can never, ever satisfy. That's the whole point of idols, when we worship something, and I don't mean idols like you're going to stop on the way home, grab somebody's goat, and worship your, your idol that's built in your backyard. But every single one of us has a heart that continues to produce idols. All of us. Those, those idols may be finances. It may be your work. It may be a, a promotion. It could be your children. It could be your car. It could be your home. It could be, it could be anything. It could be your appearance. And when, when you're, those become your idols, it's, it's doomed to failure. And your idol can only disappoint because those things were never created to, 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 to carry the weight of your hope and expectation. So if you idolize your job when work has layoffs, you're done. When you, when you idolize your finances and the stock market takes a, a quick turn down, when you idolize your appearance and you've, you've, you've got a bad hair day going. You've gained a couple of pounds. When misery sets in. When, when, you, when you idolize your kids and then moving day comes. See, see they're never meant to carry that weight. And the people are just, we keep working, we keep working, we keep working, we got nothing. We keep working, we got nothing. And God has to be like, I know, huh? Almost like I told you. God's design for us, as you look through even the, the history of the Old Testament Scripture, is that we would seek Him first. Why? Because He's God. And not only is he worthy of being sought, but when you seek him, you get him. And so that's where we should, we should be driving towards. We, we can't get out of our own way. And because we're just like the people in Haggai's time, we, we pursue our own lives and our dreams. And what we try to do is, is after we've pursued our own life, after we've pursued our own dreams, we try to fit God in at the tail end. So it's going to be my life with a sprinkling of God. And what that does is simply reveal our selfishness. So, so just for time's sake, let me jump to this. This is crazy. So Haggai comes to the people and says, and says, this is the message from God. You have been so focused on yourself and neglecting my stuff, the things that I've called you to take care of, and because of that, you're seeking these things and they're not rewarding you at all. And, and so what I'm commanding you to do is go to the hills, get the timber, bring it down, and get to work. And shocker of all shockers, the people do it. And you get to verse 13, and it says this, Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, delivered the Lord's message to the people. I am with you. I am with you. What, what, I mean, it's really an amazing thing to get a note of encouragement during the week, isn't it? Maybe you were, uh, I don't know, we had friends who trained for uh, the Chicago Marathon a number of years ago. 
and every Saturday was their long run of the week. So during the week, they would run a, a certain amount of, of distance, and then on Saturday, those were the killer runs. And so we had a, a lady in our church who on those Saturdays would show up at the park where those people were going to be running their 15, 16, 17 miles on a Saturday. And she would start off by being there when they got there and just let them know, I love you guys, I'm praying for you, I'm so excited to, to see what happens when you run this marathon, I'm so glad that you stepped up to do this. And then she would position herself, she would get in her car though, because she's smart, um, so she would drive to where they were running, and as they came by, she would just encourage them, like, keep going, keep going. And it was something they looked for every week, was for her to show up. What is it like when it's God? And he says, that's my boy. And a girl. You keep working, I'm with you. Now, because Haggai is so good at dating things, when we get to the first verse of chapter 2, we know that we have only moved about four weeks. So here they are obeying, and they're back at the work, and God's encouraging them, and, and, and fanning the flame, and, and I, I'm with you. Go forward three or four weeks, and you get to chapter 2, verse 1, and, and let me start reading there. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai, he said, speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah. Speak to the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and to the remnant of the people. <clears throat> who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Doesn't it seem to you like nothing by comparison? Something has happened, folks. Something has happened at the building of the, the, the temple that has brought a discouragement. And, and Haggai is talking to those people who are discouraged, saying, see, how many of you saw the original temple? And now you see this. What are you thinking? Now, because Ezra records what's happening at the time as well, what we find is this. The, the people had gotten to work, and they had, they, had, they had really worked hard, and they built the foundation of the temple. So the footprint of the temple is now done. And, and you get to uh, Ezra chapter 3, and you, you find that, the, that they finish it, and so then the priests, they, they take off their work clothes, they put on their, their, their holy robes, they get out their, their trumpets, and they get ready to blow their trumpets, and the, the Levites come, and they get their cymbals ready, and it's about to be this big noise. And so the priests play the trumpet, and the Levites hit their cymbals just like David prescribed, and there's praise and thanks, and they're singing this song. God is so good. His faithfulness endures forever. The people give a great shout. They praise God. I mean, so it's this, you have this worshipful moment, but in the middle of it, we have Ezra chapter 3, verse 12. It says this, but... Many of the older priests and the Levites and other leaders who had seen the first temple wept aloud when they saw the new temple's foundation. The others were shouting for joy. We're told in Ezra that they were shouting for joy so much so that it was hard to differentiate between who was crying and sobbing and who was shouting and celebrating. Because in this moment, what's occurring is the people who had been alive long enough, who, who at this point were probably in their 70s or 80s, 
They had lived long enough to see the original temple in all of its splendor, in all of its glory, in all of its massiveness and majesty, and they were overwhelmed with it, and then it was destroyed, and they come back and they look at the foundation that these young people are building, and they're like, oh no, that's, um, that's not good. This is where you get the, the, the phrase, the phrase is actually appropriate here, you know, back in my day, we do, and, and, and I don't think it's the case here, I think sometimes though, uh, we do fall for the trap of the good old days. Well, back in the good old days, just be clear, they were old, good's probably open to interpretation. We tend to be a little bit revisionist in our history at times. However, these people had seen Solomon's temple. And now this. I'm assuming, based on the fact that Haggai had to deal with it here, that the response of the, we'll call them the senior saints, was a blow to the young people. Um, I think they were a little stung by the response. I do believe strongly that the senior saints were completely heartbroken, and rightly so. And so now there's this, what could be an unhealthy tension developing in the people. And, and, and again, that this, the point is, far, is glorious and wonderful, and we're going to get there in a second, but I don't want to skip this. I want to take an opportunity just to, to, to just throw a word out here, particularly to our young people. Do not write some of our senior saints off when they start talking about their day. God has done some amazing things through many of our senior saints who call Uniontown home. They have been present for some things that are remarkable. And we should celebrate our history. Um, we were... Uh, in, in the throes of trying to get all this stuff moved up the office, we stumbled upon some old pictures from 1904. They dressed a little differently then. <laughs> Grandma Dingle was in the picture. Her name was labeled on it, Grandma Dingle. So if you know Grandma Dingle, we have a picture of her. Let me know. It's a heritage, guys. And so young people, and I include myself in that at least for a little more longer, there's great value in the wisdom of our more senior saints. So, so do not allow your ideas, your, your style, your form to become your God. Because your God is actually their God. The God who rescued them from their sin is the God who rescues you for your, from your sin. And so on the other side of the coin, I would encourage our senior saints here, don't look at the young people with all their energy, enthusiasm, and passion as being annoying. They are annoying sometimes. Okay. There continues to be a stirring within this body of Christ to reach the community for Christ. And the core of that right now continues to fly out of some of our younger members. Encourage them. 
Be the lady standing on the side of the road telling them just to keep running. Share your stories with them. But just like their style, their form isn't God, our history isn't our God either. God works through different people different ways, and so we must embrace that. Now, it's interesting that as, as, as Haggai gets to this point, he, he encourages the people twice. He says, I know there's great weeping, there's great mourning, there's great discouragement. So, so look at verse 4. He says, I'm going to recognize the discouragement. I'm going to recognize that this doesn't seem like anything in comparison to the original temple. I get that. But verse 4 says this, even so, be strong, Zerubbabel. This is the Lord's declaration. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land. This is the Lord's declaration. Work, because I am with you. See, there it is again. The motivation is God is with us. When we seek him, we find him. And so Haggai says, be strong, be courageous, be stubborn, Be bold in this. You just keep your head down. You keep doing what God's called you to do. And don't fear. You continue to to work. Enjoy the very presence of God. And look at who he says he is. I am with you. The declaration of the Lord of armies. The Lord of hosts. It's translated the Lord Almighty. It's translated the Lord Sabaoth. The idea is this, in Scripture, when this name of God is used, it's, it's most often used when somebody is at the very end of their rope. When somebody is, has reached the end in failure, in fatigue, in, in powerlessness, they have no resources for their strength, and God comes on the scene and says, I am the Lord Almighty. I am the one who has the authority to do this. And I am the one that doesn't have the power. I am the power. So you keep working. Because I, the Lord Almighty, am with you. The greatest thing you could get from God is God. Stop asking for anything else. That's true through all of history. You looked at all the Old Testament history. God continued to come to his people. He's like, I'm with you. Why? Okay, I'm with you. A king? I'm with you. I mean, it just continues over and over again. And so, so even today, God has reached out and he's offered that to you. He's offered himself to you. There is no greater picture of that than the very birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ, with his name, Emmanuel. God with us. He promises to go with us, to go before us, to be with us. He promises that we have no need for fear because the God, the Creator, our Redeemer is on our side and He's with us. But there's two encouragements. That's the first one. The second one we get to down in verse 6, and this is where we're going to end, right here. The Lord of armies says this. Once more in just a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. So he's saying, I'm, that's how powerful I am. That's how authoritative I am. That's how sovereign I am. I am big enough of a God where I'm going to shake everything you see. Verse eight, uh, 7. I'm going to shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations will come and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of armies. He's prophesying something that we see fulfilled in Ezra, and I gotta look, but I think it's chapter eight, I'm sorry. Chapter six, in Ezra chapter six, 
where, where King Darius has now come in. He's taken Cyrus' position in Persia. Now the king of Persia is Darius. And, and in this crazy moment, as these people are trying to build the temple of God and make it as majestic as they can on a shoestring budget, King Darius says, guess what? We're going to take our treasury and we're going to pay for it all, top to bottom. And we're going to deck it out. So whatever you need, you ask. And we'll pay for the rebuilding of the temple. See, see God says, I want you to know, I am with you. I am, I am sovereign. I'm going to act and everything's going to shake. It's going to shake so much that other people are going to pay for your temple and think it was their idea. Oh, and one more thing. Verse 9, the final glory of this house will be greater than the first. I'll provide peace in this place. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. God says, can I tell you, those of you who are standing there and rightfully so mourning the seeming insignificance of this place now, let me encourage you one more way. That first temple, Solomon's temple, was nothing compared to the temple that I have in mind. And what was the temple that God had in mind? Matthew chapter 12, verse 6, Jesus is speaking and he says this, I tell you all, something greater than the temple is standing right here. The very promise of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who came and willingly laid down his life so that you and I wouldn't have to taste death. A far greater temple has come, and his name is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thanks that you love us that much. Thank you that in a, in a confusing and frustrating book like Haggai, we still have opportunity to see the promises that you extend, those promises being your very presence. Um. Lord, I pray you'd forgive me for, for pursuing anything more than I pursue you. God, I know there's times where I cry out for my needs, my desire, my wishes, and, and what you're continuing to tell me time and time again is you are the greatest thing that you could possibly give me. And so today, whether, whether somebody's here wrestling with, with a struggle in their own life, whether they're just sitting here and, and being complacent, focusing on the kingdom of self, or or perhaps they're sitting here thinking that it's just not as good as it used to be when, when they, they, they had more time, more energy, more, more resources. God, I pray that in this moment that you would fix their eyes on Christ and that you would remind them that you are with them when, you pursue, when we pursue you. And Lord, I, I pray in some small way today that we would have given you more glory than we were able to in our own self because the Spirit's carried it to you. So we ask that you would receive our worship receive our praise, and may we live a life that's changed as a result of the preaching of God's word. It's in his good, precious name I pray. Amen. Amen.